Well, okay, Cowboy fans, today is a big day, okay? We have hardly sniffed the playoffs in the last 30 years, it feels like. And today we finally have a home game, um, which is good for the Cowboys, given that our, we enjoyed a, a home field advantage this year. I think the Cowboys were 8-0 at home. And over the last five years, I think the Cowboys have won 62% of their home games, which um, is an encouraging thing. But before you expect victory too quickly, due to home field advantage, know that across the wider NFL this season, do you know that home teams lost more than they won? Across the NFL over the season, home teams lost more than they won. And on Monday Night Football, I thought this statistic was very interesting when you would think that the home team would enjoy home field advantage because Monday night football, all the fans come, we're at home, we're motivated to win. Actually, doesn't work out that way. Home teams won just 45% of the time when playing at home on Monday night. Playing at home doesn't always confer an advantage and preaching at home we will see in our text, doesn't always confer an advantage. Jesus' very first sermon in his hometown of Nazareth being a very sober example of this. With that in mind, please stand for the reading of God's word. This is the second sermon in our series uh, this spring on the life and ministry of Jesus Christ that will culminate on Easter Sunday. I believe that's March 31st, where we celebrate the resurrection of Christ. Remember, beloved, these are the very written words of God. Jesus returned to Galilee um, uh, in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. Verse 16. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind to set the oppressed free to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, what makes this different from the other times he taught in the synagogue, the reason scholars view this as his first sermon, okay, is because of what he said next. Really, it's the first sermon related to formally announcing who he was. Verse 20, then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, 
Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Indeed, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever, and may he add his blessing to it. You may be seated. So thinking about um, first sermons in a sense, this at a minimum was his first sermon in the town of Nazareth, depending on how you're looking at it. I've had two first sermon experiences, if you will, that I will never forget. The first one was in front of 12 people, okay? The second one was in front of 1,200 people. Two very different first sermon experiences. Um, My very first sermon was actually in someone's living room. There was a church plant in Charlotte, North Carolina that I was serving as an intern at, and so we would also meet on Sunday evenings, and that's when they would let the interns have a shot at preaching because only 12 people were there. You know, how much damage could be done? And so I preached my first sermon with enthusiasm and vigor, and when I was done, and as we were mingling, James Del Vecchio came up to me, never forget this, and he said to me, and he was, um, he was a very um, sober-minded man. Um, he was a little bit intense and very direct, um, kind of no-frills kind of guy. And he came up to me, and he shook my hand, and he said, David, thank you for your labors. And I was like, wow, James, oh, thank you. Wow, that's, that's encouraging. You thank me for my labors. I found out later that he only said that when he had nothing good to say about the sermon. (laughs) But he wanted to thank the person for trying and preaching nonetheless, okay? That was my very first sermon. My very first sermon in Dallas came very quickly after I started at Park City's Presbyterian Church. Actually, it's how I got to meet Jonathan Smith because I was the new guy on staff, the new pastor on staff, and... Skip asked me to preach close to July 4th, also when no one would be there, okay? Makes sense. It was such a sparse, um, I guess, congregation expected that Robbie Rucker, who was doing music, also was out of town. I guess so he chose you for the same thing, Jonathan. I'm sorry. (laughs) So there Jonathan and I were leading worship at Park City's Presbyterian Church, didn't think there would be many people there, but there were. Much to my chagrin, there were. And this is a true story. Um, maybe I've mentioned it before, and the way that the liturgy went, similar to here, there would be an offertory played immediately before the minister would stand up, read the scripture, and preach. And that was the longest offertory I have ever heard in my life, Jonathan. You know, because what the offertory does, like at a place like PCPC, that long offertory before you stand up there, it's like icing the kicker. You know, it gives you far too much time to think about everything that's about to go wrong for the next 25 minutes. You know, they say during intense times in your life, your life flashes before you. And and I think my decision to go into ministry flashed before me at that moment when I'm like, why in the world am I doing this? Like it was, but it was a very encouraging experience nonetheless. Um, They both shaped me 
um, in various ways. They were both difficult in their own ways, but thankfully, neither of which involved getting thrown off a cliff like was attempted on Jesus following his first sermon in Nazareth. Okay, so let's, let's consider our text this morning. So when Jesus read the scroll, and so it was, it was customary in those days for rabbis or well-thought-of teachers to be just given the pulpit, as it were, on a given Saturday. They would ask a local leader, a local teacher, a well-respected rabbi to read from God's word and then explicate or explain some text of scripture. So Jesus being asked to do this tells us a couple things. By this time, he was already a well-respected leader. He was already viewed as a respected rabbi because of the weight, the power, the authority of his words. But unique here, Jesus, what did he say? What was the, what was the commentary that he gave to this entire reading. Now remember, where is he reading from? You know, it may not, it's not gonna be in the bulletin, but if you have your Bibles, there'll be a, a text note. Jesus is selectively reading from Isaiah 61, verses one through 2a, and he's also alluding back to Isaiah 58, six. He kind of brings them together. Scholars might call this like a, a compound quote that he selectively draws from Isaiah 61, 1 and 2a, and Isaiah 58, 6, and attached to these readings, he says, today, this is fulfilled in your hearing. That would have been the most shocking thing that could have possibly happened in a Jewish first century context. Why would that be the case? Like, every eye was fixed on him. They were overwhelmed with what they just heard. How would you paraphrase what he said? What did he essentially say to his hometown synagogue? He basically said, the Messiah is here. The long-awaited, long-anticipated Messiah of God is here and I am he. I am the one you have been waiting for. Initially, did they respond with dismay? Initially, you know, through the scripture reading, do they respond upset or angrily? We're going to see that later in our scripture reading, initially they don't respond negatively. You know, if you know a little bit about this text, how do they initially respond? We can go to Let's see, what panel is it? We've got so many panels now. Let's see. I don't even know what panel it is. Okay, panel seven. You can see that number at the bottom right. Look with verse 22. This is how they respond when he declares to his hometown people and really to all of Israel, I am he. I am the Messiah. Okay, he's quoting from messianic texts from Isaiah 61, Isaiah 58, 6. Those were definitely associated with the coming of Messiah. Look at verse 22. They didn't accuse him of blasphemy. They didn't say, how dare you say these things, 
later like Pharisees said to him. Verse 22 of Luke chapter 4. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son? They asked. Why such a positive response? Why didn't they think he was a charlatan or he was a false messiah? Why were they embracing what he said? It's because of what he had been doing. Okay, what he'd been doing all throughout Galilee, Capernaum, all of these places. He'd been speaking in the synagogue. People were in awe of him. Let me just read to you again verses um, 14 and 15 of our text. I'm sorry, of Luke chapter 5. In Luke chapter 5, 14 and 15, it says news about Jesus spread throughout the whole countryside. He was teaching in synagogues. Everyone praised him later. It says his words had authority. So in Jesus, I, I can't imagine what that would be like. You know, you hear of, of leaders who have great charisma. Um, Monday will be Martin Luther King Day, and regardless of your politics, um, what he did for civil rights was incredible. When you hear some of the speeches he gave, especially, you know, um, in Washington, that great I Have a Dream speech, you can't watch that without getting goosebumps. It's like no one has ever spoken um, that that powerfully, that authoritatively in some of those ways. Again, this is not a political statement. This is just to hear him give that speech is incredible. That can't compare with the spirit-enabled authority and gravitas and power and conviction that Jesus preached with. I cannot imagine what it would have been like to have been there and to have heard it and to have heard Jesus himself read the words of God related to Messiah. They were initially encouraged from our text. What does he say? He's quoting Isaiah 61 and 58 that, that proclaims what? Good news to whom? Good news to the poor, freedom from, for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, the oppressed would be set free. Why did that resonate with them? Why do you think? Why did this mean so much to them at this point in their life? What was their situation? Under whose dominion were they? Rome. And even though they had lots of freedoms, they knew that if anything got out of hand, the might of Rome would sweep down on them like a raging river. They did not enjoy independence. They did not enjoy autonomy. They could not do everything that they wanted to do, and they were ready to be set free. You know, and so you've heard this a lot, that the Jews were expecting this messianic ruler to throw off the yoke of Rome and crush Caesar and install a son of David as king. And all these verses come true. So, when Jesus reads from this, and he mentions from Isaiah 61 and 58, good news to the poor, freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, oppressed set free, 
These were messianic promises, and they associated them with independence, redemption for the nation, the nation of Israel. These words harken back to the concept of jubilee. You've heard of the jubilee before. I won't try to sing this for you, but back when I was growing up, um, like on Sunday mornings before we would go to church, I would turn on, it was like these, these gospel singers, and they had this song that was about the jubilee. And if you're just with me alone, I'll sing it for you, but I won't do so now. But I, I will never forget that song, and I had no idea what a jubilee was. The jubilee, of which this language is pointing back to, from Isaiah 61, Isaiah 58, hearkening back to Leviticus 25, what happened during the jubilee? During the jubilee, slaves were set free. If you had had to sell property to get yourself out of debt, your property was returned to you. If you were in prison, you would be set free. Okay, so there were all kinds of um, um, redemption and liberation themes in these verses that they would thought of. And so they were so excited that Messiah had come potentially. Look with me again at verses 22 through 30. You can stay there now. All spoke well of him. They were amazed at his gracious words that came from his lips. Do you know, there's no translation that can really capture what Luke is trying to say. They were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Later it says he preached with authority. I, I just think you really can't communicate exactly what it was like to be there and how wonderful it was when he spoke and taught. Look with me at verse 23. Okay, now, you know, things are about to go very, very wrong. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son, they asked? Verse 23. Jesus said to them, not one to be a people pleaser, surely you will quote this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself. And you will tell me, do here in your hometown what we heard that you did in Capernaum in terms of Miracles, okay, if you're capable of doing that elsewhere, do it here. He knew they would say that. Verse 24, truly I tell you, he continued, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet. And yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. Verse 28. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of town, Took him, to throw, took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff, but he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. Beloved, what was it that made them so mad? Was it the fact that he said, one day you'll quote this proverb to me? Do you think they found that insulting? Was that the issue? 
No. What was it then? What did he say that was so offensive to them given this context? You know, he gives two examples from the Old Testament of perhaps the most revered prophets of the Old Testament, Elijah and Elisha. And he highlights examples of them going outside of Israel into Gentile territory to show grace and mercy. Let's look again at the text. Verse 25. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land, meaning of Israel, yet Elijah was not sent to any of them. Elijah was not going to bring relief to Israel, but to a Gentile widow in Seraphath in the region of Sidon. So she was a Gentile. She was not a Jew. There were all these needs in Israel, and yet Elijah didn't go to meet these needs in Israel. He goes to the Gentiles. Same thing with Elisha. Verse 27, and there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elijah's successor, Elisha. Yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman, the Syrian, this enemy of Israel. Naaman, who was in charge of all of these raids on Israel, God healed him through Elisha. So the people understood what Jesus was saying. What was Jesus saying? Your expectations about Messiah are wrong. And what Elijah did and Elisha did, you know, is going to be what I do. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not about bringing Israel back to this geopolitical nation. The gospel of Jesus Christ, the role of Messiah, is to extend grace and mercy all over the world to Jew and Gentile alike, and that's why they tried to throw him off the cliff. Because how did they view Gentiles? What moniker did they place upon Gentiles? What did they call them? Dogs. Gentile dogs. They hated Rome. It was a kind of racism, if you will. They couldn't stand them. And the idea of God showing mercy and grace to their oppressors was inconceivable and they wouldn't have it. And it's because, of course, they were selectively reading from the Old Testament. And we often selectively read from God's word based on our expectation and our desires. You know, disillusionment and disappointment with God is oftentimes a function of unrealistic and unreasonable expectations of who he is and what he'll do in our lives. Like back in the uh, late 1980s, those of you who um, are a little more mature in age, I think I fall in that territory now, Remember a book that came out in 1988 that was a bestseller. Sold over a million copies. Book of the year called Disappointment with God. Raise your hand if you've ever heard of that book. Yeah, that, I mean, that was 
the most popular book in evangelical Christianity for a number of years because the author was trying to grapple with these questions. Why are we disappointed with God? Okay, why does he seem so hidden? Why doesn't he answer our prayers the way that we want him to? I, I differ a little bit with some of his conclusions, but one reason, I'll tell you this, is expectations. We expect things of God that he hasn't promised in this life. We judge him by our standards. You know, he doesn't align with our narrow expectations. We have these preconceived notions about what a loving God would or wouldn't do in our world. You know, this can lead to um, diminished faith in the Lord. Um, what do unrealistic and unreasonable expectations do in relationships with each other? One of the biggest um, challenges to marriage, harmonious long-term marriage is unreasonable or un, um, unrealistic or unreasonable expectations at the get-go. Because all marriages face great um, challenges um, and obstacles and there is no perfect person that we could ever marry. We, we dream in our minds that if we just married just this right person then my marriage would be better, my marriage would be, would be, would be good. Um, now obviously there, there are some situations where Horrible th things are done within the context of marriage and true abuse happens and infidelity and, and I'm, not, I'm not talking about that right now. I'm talking about in, in kind of you know, more, more normal contexts. It's amazing how disillusioned the average couple can get with their marriage. And it's because of these unrealistic and unreasonable expectations that we just project and that's what we do with God. And the Lord Jesus is we, we put on him these unrealistic and unreasonable expectations. And God will never be fit in our little box. God is sovereign. God is omnipotent. God is fully just. God is also mercy and love and grace and we're called to trust him and to love him and check our expectations at the door based on what we think he should be and do in our life. I do really agree with this wonderful quote from the book where the author writes, not until history has run its course will we understand how all things work together for good. Faith means believing in advance Faith means believing in advance what will only make sense in reverse. Beloved, truer words have never been spoken. Faith means believing in advance at the beginning, checking your expectations at the door, believing in advance what will only make sense in reverse. Or as one of my professors would say, when we get to glory, we will say to our triune God, when we have all the information that we need, you did it right. 
Think about Jesus. Did Jesus have any expectations? What did Jesus pray on the cross? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from the words of my groaning? In that moment, he was confused. He didn't understand, yet he trusted anyway. I mean, the expectations of the Messiah. Jesus was rejected by those who were rejected. Can anything good come from Nazareth? Jesus, the Messiah of the living God, was rejected by those who had been rejected. If he could humble himself in these ways, if he could trust God despite the difficulties of his circumstances, beloved, so can we. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Father, we learned so much from this text. We thank you uh, for, Holy Spirit, for committing this to writing through the hands of the competent physician, Luke. Father, we thank you that we have a record of the very text from which Jesus preached in a synagogue in Nazareth in approximately 31 AD. We know the exact verses in Isaiah from which he preached and what he was intending to say. Father, if the Lord Jesus Christ was so humble as to allow himself to be rejected by a people who had been rejected, if he could humble himself and entrust himself to your care to that degree, Father, help us by your Spirit to learn more and more what it means to do the same thing. Lord Jesus, we love you and we thank you and we pray this in your matchless name. Amen.